sales quotas can often feel like the brass ring that's just out of reach, but they don't have to be. Today's guest has tips for not only meeting sales quota, but also how to exceed them. Now, who wouldn't want to be a sales star? Stay tuned. This is Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hassel-Kelchner, helping you see business issues hiding in plain view that matter to your bottom line. Welcome to Business Confidential Now, the weekly podcast for smart executives, managers, and entrepreneurs looking to improve business performance and their bottom line. I'm your host, Hannah Hassel-Kelchner, and I have a great guest for you today. He's Steve Weinberg. Steve has spent his life selling, having closed over $500 million in new business to a who's who of leading businesses. And today, he helps others sell better, faster, and more by building, guiding, and sustaining high-caliber sales teams and creating exemplary standards in account management. With over three decades of leadership experience in sales, he's distilled his knowledge into a book titled Above Quota Performance, and I am delighted to have him join us today. Welcome to Business Confidential Now, Steve. Thank you, Hannah. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. You know, sales quotas, yeah, it's just one of those things that can strike fear into somebody's heart. Can they make it? Will they make it? Is it realistic? Steve, in your experience, what's the biggest problem with sales quotas? Why do people feel it sets them up to fail? Well, there are a number of reasons. I, you know, I know that for me, every time I reach quota or exceeded quota, they always increase the quota. So, so it seemed like in, in many cases you were penalized for achieving quota. And I found that in researching this, most quotas are determined from the top down. The company decides what revenue they need. They go to the VP of sales or the chief revenue officer and say, this is the sales dollar we need for this year, and then that amount gets allocated among the salespeople. And we, we've seen through, again, through research that approximately half of all salespeople do not achieve their annual quota. And I've seen numbers anywhere from 40% to 66%. So I settled on the number of 50%. And I just think that's an astonishing number. I mean, and it's accepted. So when you think about it, any organization anticipates that 50% of their salespeople will not reach quota. That's part of their planning process. And, you know, I, I don't know how that could be accepted by many companies, but it is. And I think now there's been a somewhat of a move to try to alter that. But I think that amount has stayed the same for the last 20 or 25 years. That's such a depressing number, Steve. I mean, what what is it? Is it, do they just jack it up in anticipation of the failure, or people don't understand the sales force doesn't understand the sales process? I mean, is it an art or a science? You know, what's the secret here, Steve? Well, in, in my book, I mentioned that selling is both an art and a science. But when you look at this, I think a lot of that has to do with companies not having the patience to put in effect a sales training plan that allows new salespeople to maybe not go on quota immediately, particularly when they're moving into a new territory and being trained properly. But again, in my research, I found that if you ask the salespeople what the problem is, they will tell you their quotas are too high. 
but if they're too high, then, you know, the 50% did achieve it. So 50% didn't, but 50% did. So usually that's not the reason. A lot of it is because of the lack of sales training. And then when you look at salespeople, very insufficient prospecting by them. In fact, often they're doing little or no prospecting or they're targeting the wrong people. They're not thoroughly qualifying leads. They're not finding the key decision makers and they may not be articulating a compelling value proposition. When you look at sales management and they're not, they don't escape blame here. There's very inadequate sales leadership. I know in my past that my sales management usually consisted of what are you going to get this month and you know why isn't a greater amount that was <laughs> that was pretty much the coaching I got in many cases but there's also been poor hiring practices by sales managers when filling openings and again as I mentioned earlier in- inadequate onboarding when bringing in new people into a territory you've covered a lot of ground here about the prospecting, qualifying leads, not getting to the key decision makers, poor leadership, poor hiring, poor onboarding. It's just across the board here, Steve. What is the biggest mistake that keeps the sales process from achieving their sales quotas? I mean, is is any one of these bigger than the others or are they all yeah. you know, equally liable here? I would focus on two. One would be the onboarding, and the second really is the salespeople chasing the wrong leads or the wrong prospects, going and spending a lot of time and going after companies and people that, are, that just won't be buying from them. A lot of them don't understand that because if they call somebody up and the people are receptive to their call and they're friendly to them, the salespeople will normally just continue on and not understand or not realize that company or that person probably will never buy from them. And a lot of times, and I I also cover this in the book, the salespeople don't understand that their real competition is not the company that they normally see in the marketplace. The real competition is do nothing or status quo. So the salespeople don't understand that. They talk to somebody who's friendly to them, and then six months later or, or maybe less, they find out they're not going to buy from them because they're a lot of times they're content to stay with what they have. Wow. So, Steve, when you're coaching people in how to achieve their sales quotas, what do you zero in on on first besides qualifying prospects? And maybe that should be it. What, what qualifies a prospect? Because that's really ground it's- zero, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, when you think about it, one again, one of the things I talk about is time management and, and how, you know, where do you spend your time and, and selling? And that, you know, we have a finite amount of time in a year or in a work week. And if we waste a lot of it on prospects that will never buy from us, we can't get that time back. So what I talk about is trying to find prospects that are in, in what I call the sweet spot. And the sweet spot being a set of prospects where your value proposition, their needs, and your competitive strengths all intersect. So you could have any one of those three not be the case, and you have a less than optimal prospect, in which case you may win, but you're more likely not going to win, and then that's a a big time waster. 
So if you think about it in a year, if you could only focus on people that are going to buy and you develop a really good value proposition, you have a greater chance of, of selling and making your quota and not wasting a lot of time on people that won't buy. Well, most people are pretty opaque. How do you know those things? How do you find out whether they're good prospects? It's becoming more difficult than it ever has before. I would say five or 10 years ago, when a salesperson, and particularly in the enterprise sales world, which was where I was at, when you would call on a company, they were willing to meet with you and a lot of times share information with you. Today, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, because of the pandemic, they shut down most contact. And even the Zoom contact is more limited than what we had in the past for face-to-face meetings. So what that requires for the salespeople is to make a, a lot of telephone calls or Zoom calls or try to get on-site meetings with people and to meet with more people because the amount of time you're getting with each is very limited today as compared to the past. Okay. And you have to ask a lot of what I would say, ask a lot of open-ended questions, not closed-end questions. You don't want yes or no answers. You want people, if you say to somebody, why are you thinking about making this change? And then you want them to tell you the reason, right? And if they say, well, we're not, we don't know whether we're going to make a change or not, well, that's, you know, that's what I would call a red flag. And then you can drill down on that. What I find is most prospects are pretty honest if you ask the right questions. But if you don't ask the questions, they won't volunteer it. So let's go to your example here for a second. You know, the prospect who says, I don't know that I'm going to make a change. You call that a red flag. Right. How would you recommend somebody drill down on that? It doesn't necessarily mean that it, that they won't buy. It means they need to be convinced or they need to see the value in making a change. And the organization does. So what you would have to say to somebody, are, you know, are you getting what you want out of your whatever your solution is today? Is that meeting your needs? And I would say from my discussions, at least 80 percent of the time, they'll tell you, no, it's not. You know, and then you say, okay, what are the, you know, what are the deficiencies? And they'll tell you, you know, it's not timely enough or we're not getting the right information or any number of reasons. And then you say, okay, what can I do to explain to you how, you know, we can improve that for you and then have them seek that information from you and explain to them how your solution or product or whatever can help alleviate that situation for them. And then once, if they recognize that, then you say, okay, now that you've seen that, can we quantify this or can we take a look at what it would mean if you make that change? And you want to get into the position where somebody doesn't look at their expenditure for your solution as a cost, but more as an investment. So for example, if they spend, let's say, $500,000 $500,000 with you, will they get $5 million of, of return on that? And if that's the case, it makes it a whole lot easier to sell. If they just look at the 500000 and say, well, if we stay what we have right now, we don't have to spend 500000 We don't have to disrupt anything. We don't have to change any training. We don't have to hire any new people. You know, we can just deal with this. And, you know, and then 
what salespeople need to find out is, you know, are they willing to go out of that comfort zone? And if they're not willing to even entertain that idea, then you might be wasting your time. Those are some great tips for questions to ask and how to approach sort of the ambivalent buyer, if you will. I particularly like, you know, the ones dealing with the pain of disconnect. You know, what would it mean for you if you could get X, Y, Z? Because it's also a way to quantify. And particularly for people who are selling services, showing the value of what they do can be difficult sometimes if somebody's just comparing cost to cost instead of what they could gain. So thank you for that, Steve. I think that's that's really right. that's really powerful. You also need to quantify what the cost of doing nothing is. So let's say if you don't do anything, if you don't buy from me, then what's the cost to you? What's the cost to your organization? Let's quantify that. And that's important too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think a lot of people don't look at it that way. So again, that's it's a good perspective to help people evaluate things. Now, let's say you've qualified the prospect. You mentioned before that one of the issues you see in people not being able to reach or exceed sales quota is follow-up. What's a good follow-up process, uh, frequency? I mean, you don't want to be nagging somebody with an email every day, but by the same token, you know, you point out that letting too much time go by, you become your own worst enemy and, you know, the competition. So help us understand that it's, more. Again, it's become very difficult and much more difficult today than it was pre-pandemic, even just three years ago. But what I would normally do is at the end of every meeting, I would always ask when I should follow up with them and get a date on their calendar at that point in time. So if somebody said to me, well, we're going to be busy for the next two weeks, why don't you call me, you know, two weeks from Monday? I would say, okay, let's look at the calendar. You know, that's the 22nd. So I can call you at 10 o'clock in the morning on that date, correct? And they would say yes or no. They said no, then you'd, you know, get a different time or date. And then you set that date right at that point in time so that when you call them, they would take the call. So it's not a an unwelcome or a cold call at that point in time. And unless they tell you not to call, which is a different problem altogether, most of the time the pace that they give you will be adequate and you can work with it, but sometimes it's not. And if they tell you, well, you know, we'll call you when we need you, then then you have to then make a decision as to how you're going to handle that. That's not a good sign. So I would say, well, you know, how about if I check back with you in two weeks and again, go through that conversation of of setting a date. But the more you're able to actually set a follow-up date, the more likely it is that they'll take the call. And I found that this also works really great in cold calling because I actually got to the point where when I called somebody, I hoped that they would say that they would not take the call at that point in time. So I would call somebody up and I'd say, Mrs. Jones, you know, do you have time right now? And she would say, no, I don't. I'm going into a meeting in five minutes. And I'd say, okay, can we set a date for you to speak with me? And then we would actually get a date on their calendar, which is, in my mind, far better than her taking that call when you when you interrupted her from doing something at that point in time, because they're always doing something, right? They're not sitting there daydreaming. 
So they're, they're busy doing something, and when you call them, you've interrupted them. So it's better to have a, a call on their schedule or agenda, and then when you call them, you remind them that this is the time that we set aside for our conversation. I love that idea because uh, it also gets you past gatekeepers. Many times they have an assistant who take answers and screens their phone calls. And this way you can say, oh, Mr. Weinberg is expecting my call. Uh, we set this date up this time two weeks ago. And you know they'll go ask you <laughs> and say, did you remember exactly. talking to this guy? And, and it jogs them. So, no, that's that's a wonderful tip. Exactly. Very, very, yeah, very you know, practical. It's, it's funny because I was at the very end of, of my sales career, I went into the sales training area and we spent a lot of time on cold calling. And then I, this was not something that I had planned, but it actually worked out. It was actually a better, it was more productive for them not to take the call at that moment. If, if they picked up the phone, not take that call, but schedule a later call that worked out much better all the time. And if they say, don't call me, I'll call you, then you can go back to your qualifying process, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> then, or, or you go, if, if it's a target company and it's somebody that you absolutely want to sell and this person says, don't call me, then what I would normally do is go after somebody else in that organization. Okay, wonderful. I'd like to talk about your book a little bit. The title is Above Quota Performance, and that's a really interesting title. But I got to ask, because you mentioned this earlier in your own experience, you reach your quota and now they just raise it. Uh, wouldn't it, you become a victim of your own success, making it harder and harder quarter after quarter and year after year to outdo yourself? Why do you want to do that? It's like the dogs chasing uh, the rabbit, right? Yeah. But it's something that I dealt with throughout my career. I don't think I, I, I never had a situation where at the end of the year, after achieving or exceeding my quota. And I always well over 150% every year, sometimes as much as 400%. I never had a situation where they came back with a, with the same quota or one lower. And I would always tell them at the time they gave me the quota, I would say, <laughs> say to my sales manager, you know, this is ridiculous. You're, you're penalizing me and you're giving me an unachievable quota. And then they would say to me, you know, that's what you told me last year, but you're, you know, you achieved it. So it's, it is kind of a uh, chicken and egg process. All right. But what about those people who say, yeah, I could hit that, but I'm working harder than, than Hannah over here, who's just kind of coasting by and just barely meeting her quota, maybe by the end of the year, or end of the quarter, you know, I mean... Just from an emotional perspective, how do you manage the, the feelings that that would provoke? It's difficult. And I know, again, in my own situation, seeing that there are always some people that may have it a little easier or harder than anybody else. And that's somewhat how it is in life, right? I mean, some people, wherever you go and whatever you do, some people seem to have it easier or harder. And, and you just have to accept it and deal with it. Okay. What would be the most important thing you'd want readers to take away from your book, Above Quota Performance, Steve? I think the most important thing is that it's, sales is a great career and it's not hopeless. So that if someone is not making their quota right now and they still have the interest and want to improve, that they can improve. And the reason why I wrote this book is that there are a lot of really good books on the market, good books on sales. And I've read a lot of them. 
but I have a lot of different ideas than, than many of them. And I wanted to promote my ideas because they really work well for me. I was not initially trained in sales. I was not a natural salesperson. I'm actually a trained accountant. I'm a CPA. So I had to, <laughs> I switched, I had to do like a personality change. But it's sales is a great career and it offers all kinds of great things. For me, I like the, the fact that every day was different. Every day was challenging. It was rewarding when I closed a sale. It was very rewarding when I received a commission check. And I think salespeople are always going to be needed. Good salespeople are always going to be needed. So for the future, prospects for sales are still very good. Absolutely. Without sales, there's no revenue coming in. And with no revenue, it's really hard to sustain a business. It, it turns into a hobby. And, and how can that be financed in the long run? That's troublesome. So thank you for these You're welcome. great tips. It's been wonderful. I appreciate your time and all that you do to help others achieve and exceed their sales quotas. If you're listening and you'd like to know more about Steve Weinberg and his book, Above Quota Performance, that information as well as a transcript of this interview can be found at the show notes at businessconfidentialradio.com. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to tell your friends about the show. Leave a positive review. We'll be back next Thursday with another episode of Business Confidential Now. Until then, have a great day and an even better tomorrow.